0: And these horses are tough. They have to survive this minus 40 degrees Celsius winter they have. It's horrendously harsh. And some of the bad winters, they lose like a third of the herds. So the ones that survive are the really tough ones.
1: Welcome back to That vet Life. This week, we're going back in the archives to the episode with Dr. Georgina Johnston as she recounts her time vetting the Mongol Derby a 1,000 kilometer endurance horse race across the wild Mongolian steppes. This race is not for the faint of heart and as you will hear, challenges even the best riders. For Dr. Johnston, this race pushed her outside of her comfort zone as she and a small team of veterinarians were responsible for the care of nearly 1,400 horses that were selected for the race. This episode holds an incredible story of resiliency, and I just can't wait to share it with you. So let's jump into this episode with Dr. Georgina Johnston. So that brings me back to you graduated from RVC, mm-hmm. And then you did a year of mixed practice.
0: So I did, I went and went for Spanner for a few months. So I did some volunteer work in Morocco. Um, then I locumed small animal. Um, then I did an internship in Sydney doing equine. And then, um, then I did about two and a half years in general equine practice. And then I went, so now I'm at the University of Queensland. I'm doing a residency in, in um, sports medicine and rehab and also doing a doctorate. So a bit of research, a bit of clinics. That's
1: a, that's a little <laughs> a bit, bit of, a, of everything. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's a bit varied. And then I've also been to Mongolia this year. So I guess that's also why you want to talk to me, <laughs>
1: <laughs> just a little, a little bit. bit, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of made you want to transition out of mixed practice, or was that always your goal to kind of do a year of mixed and then really launch out into the area that you were most interested in?
0: So it was, it was just equine practice, the ambulatory practice I did. Um, so I actually did my internship and realized that I didn't want to be a surgeon. So my whole goal going through. Uni was that I wanted to be an equine surgeon, and I was really fixed on that. And I did the internship. I kind of realized I didn't actually want to do that, and didn't want to be in surgery all day. And it kind of made me reevaluate why I wanted to be a vet, and it was more to be sort of outside and like traveling around and having like that client's interaction. So I, I decided to go and do the ambulatory practice for a while, but I felt that kind of plateaued. Like I, I got to a point where I wasn't really learning much more, and it was. Some things are getting pretty boring, um, which is why I then went to, I went to the University of Queensland and did a little bit of research and then got off with a residency, which was amazing. So yeah, doing all the, cause I did the FEI vetting when I was at Randwick, um, in Sydney and carried that on. So that was always like a bit of a passion of mine, doing sports med stuff. So yeah, going and doing a sports med residency was pretty good. <laughs> it's all the things I love.
1: <laughs> and were there a couple different places that you looked at for residency or was there like a specific area that you're like this is where I want to go well
0: I was already kind of based here and like I already knew a few of the people in the hospital and so I didn't actually apply anywhere else this is this, <laughs> this was it <laughs> thankfully and thankfully I got it <laughs> which was good
1: good and how long have you been there
0: so I've been here just over a year now um, well, if you include the research before, probably more like two years. Um, but yeah, I've been doing my residency about a year um, and also doing a doctorate program. So hopefully, get some research credentials at the end.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's quite a bit though, but it all sounds like really exciting. And that's like where you want to be um, in veterinary medicine. Yeah, it's all the
0: stuff that I really love. So like I rode horses growing up and did some eventing and so getting involved in all that. That sort of performing horse side of stuff is exactly what I want to do, really. Um, but it took me a while to work that out, I think.
1: <laughs> eh, in the grand scheme of things, it's not too much time, but it can feel like forever when you're figuring it all out.
0: Yeah, and I think it was good to be in private practice anyway, because it, that that taught me a whole lot of skills that I think you need as a base anyway before you go and do a specialty. Um, like just your, your how to approach clients and all that communication side and just your sort of getting used to normal practice There's <laughs> things you see normally like the majority of lamenesses I see will be foot abscesses <laughs> which <laughs> it's not particularly exciting but it's yeah kind of
1: yeah. reality
0: though <laughs> it's
1: the base of everything though <laughs> of what you're going to yeah, see the exactly. most <laughs>
0: and then you can get on to the fancy stuff
1: yeah so you definitely so that seems you have a the background in equine like because you, you said you that you grew up riding horses you did eventing and that kind of shows that you have that knack for being outside and doing things that are maybe an extra level above what normal people would do <laughs> um, with eventing and then like because I saw somewhere that you do paragliding how does that fit into the picture?
0: Yeah. Oh well, <laughs> I don't know. Like three years ago, I just on a whim decided I'd um go and learn actually (laughs) but it turned out to be amazing it's it's i've always wanted to learn to fly actually to like fly a plane or a helicopter but this is my like poor man's version to be honest (laughs) but it's yeah it's it's a kind of freedom almost it's um you can just leave everything behind you're up in the air you have to be in the moment you have to be really concentrating on what you're doing and yeah it's a bit of an escape a bit of a challenge like you're always learning nothing's ever the same and you've got a really sometimes it's like beautifully relaxing and sometimes it's horribly physically mentally tough <laughs> <laughs> like that's, it's whatever you make it I think and like it can be risky but it's also as safe as you make it so
1: yeah have you found any like parallels between riding horses cross-country and paragliding
0: uh I guess it takes a bit of um I don't know just going for it that first time when i was when i was um learning to paraglide and they they did teach you on a little hill and you do your little flights and you leave the ground for like five meters <laughs> and then you get to the point where you've got to just bite the bullet and run off a cliff and, <laughs> that, <that's>, ah. <laughs> and you just gotta trust that yep it's gonna take off and I keep going and i've been taught all the skills and yep But you, this little voice in your head while you're going for it, is going, "You idiot! What are you (laughs) doing? Why? You're running towards a cliff with a piece of cloth above your head."
1: (laughs) (laughs) That that kind of sounds like a parallel to to your first year leaving uh, vet school and going out into practice, though. Like that—that's literally the picture that I just had in my head, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh! I have to do that in like little under two years." (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, I think
1: it's probably quite similar. Yes,
0: (laughs) got all the skills, but you haven't done it yet.
1: So are there any, is it like a specific place in near Queensland that you go to paraglide or is it you can just kind of go wherever? How does that work? There's,
0: there's places that, um, so you have to be, be a member of a club and then you go to places that they, they own or they like lease from people. Um, so you can't, you can't really just go from anywhere um, uh, unless you have like landowners permission or whatever. Um, and you've got to be a licensed paraglider and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so I'm part of a club here on the Gold Coast. Um, and then where I learned to fly was down near Tamworth, which is sort of out west in Australia. Um, so it's big open country, there's like big pumping thermals when it's really warm and like you can go for miles and miles and get up really high right up to cloud base. It's pretty amazing. But you, you can fly all sorts of things for paragliders. You can do acrobatics. You can fly speed wings. You can ski and paraglide. You can
1: <laughs> do all sorts. Ooh, ski and paraglide. That actually sounds really cool. Well, I guess we'll kind of... Um, we'll take all that adventuring side of you and we'll just kind of go right into probably what most people are here to listen to and I know I'm really excited to hear about. But so you did cross country. Did you ever get into endurance riding? Or how did you find your way into that niche?
0: So, no, um, so I actually, so I rode in the Mongol Derby, which was, um, it's, for people who don't know, it's in a thousand kilometer horse race across Mongolia on these wild little Mongolian ponies that are really quite feral, but very, very tough. And you get a new horse every 40 kilometers and you go ride between stations and it's a horrendous test of mental fortitude and <laughs> physical fitness for, for you more than the horse, I think. But, yes, me and my brother were crazy enough to do it straight after I finished uni, and that kind of led me to getting on the vet team for it this year. So I actually ended up doing horse selection as well for it, so I went out twice this year. So the first time I went out, we selected all the horses that we were going to use in the race. So there were 40 riders this year, um, and then... Each, I think there were 29 legs to the race. So we ended up selecting like 1400 horses, which was pretty that is insane Insane! Oh my so goodness. Exactly. Um, so we did lameness exams on all these horses. We did, um, cardiac evaluations. We did like as much of a physical exam as we could, um, considering these horses are sort of semi wild. Um, <laughs> so that was an experience in itself and then the next time i went out was for the actual race so we had eight bets come out for that um and it's very similar to any endurance race um with the we have fei standards so horses had to come in with heart rate below 56 um we did all the like hydration parameters and check they weren't lame and all that kind of stuff but Overall, like it, it's, it's an amazing place, Mongolia, um, and nothing quite goes to plan. So there are quite a lot of adventures that were ahead. but <laughs> 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 I'd do it again in the heartbeat. To be honest, it
1: it was it's an amazing place. So I guess we'll give them a little bit, a little bit of more of a backstory. So um, in Mongolia, like I did, like looking up on the website was basically all the research that I was able to do at the at the time, but. Like you said, it's a thousand kilometer race. And for people that are back in the states, that's kind of the distance between Washington, d c. and Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, you're doing it on the back of not just one horse, but like you said, um, every forty kilometers, you have to swap out horses. And from what I've seen in like the photos and the videos, that in itself is not that's not easy. Um, no, and these horses
0: are actually feral. Like, when I was on horse selection, they would herd them all up and they would have been touched for at least a year. They would have turned them out for the winter. And these horses are tough. They have to survive this minus 40 degrees Celsius winter they have. It's horrendously harsh. And some of the bad winters, they lose like a third of the herds. Mm. So the ones that survive are the really tough ones. Um, and they really don't want to be caught either. I can imagine <laughs> but, they bring them all over. There. It's an amazing sight. You see hundreds of horses coming over the horizon towards you, and then the herders start rounding them up. And these men are incredible horsemen, like they've been riding since they're two years old. And so they, at a gallop from horseback, they're lessering these horses, and then they're like, okay, come on over, take its heart rate. <laughs> and you're like, I don't know if I want to get near that. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's a little bit hairy at times, but. Out of fourteen hundred horses, I I got kicked twice. I think I, I did Th- quite well. Those are pretty but, good <laughs> odds. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Good. But some of them, some of them, um, just give in once they get caught, and others fight, fight and fight. Unfortunately, it's often the the really good horses that you really want in the race that they couldn't catch. <laughs> They'd be the ones disappearing off over the horizon as soon as they saw they got the lassos out They looked by the one. But um, no, we we had some places we had trouble getting enough horses so we had to get lots and lots of families to, do, to sort of give horses to us which is an- another part of it so for the two weeks we'd be driving around um from station to station or where we kind of wanted the the race to go and be finding families to, to donate horses for the race um so we i can't even think how many families we would have been around but Basically, we'd just turn up at their door and the Mongolian guy who was with us would be like, well, this is, this is what the Mongol derby is about. <laughs> Do you want to give us some horses? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Off they go. Two hours later, they'd come back with a whole load of horses and be like, take your pick, <laughs> which wow. <was> pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> But these, these horses, they're small, but they're incredibly adapted to their environment. They're really tough.
1: Yeah, because like, how would, because obviously I think a lot of people, they're not really familiar with, like, Mongolian horses, and they think of their normal standard bread or their warm blood, or maybe a quarter horse, but no, these horses, they, they kick all those horses' butt, I think, when it comes to endurance. Yeah, they're a
0: really ancient breed, um, there's been genetic studies done that show, they're like the ancestors of most of our modern horse breeds, so like the Tharbes and Stanbreds in the Arabs and everything, um, they're like right at the top of the pyramid, <laughs> Um and there's, like, there's some, you know, the Prowalski horse. They're, a lot of them actually look like that. They're, like, proper wild horses. But they're only about, let's say, like, 12 to 14 hands. So your feet almost touch the ground when you're riding. <laughs> yeah, some of the taller men were actually look quite big on the horses. But they're a lot of the Mongolian men are pretty big, too. Um, and they carry them easy. Like, they do hundreds of kilometers of, over a week with them. And, like, they're totally fine um and they race them as well which is is a sight to see
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is like parting the horse part of is catching the horse part of the race then or oh so,
0: so there's some that they hardly ever ride then there's some that they have as like herding horses um so they have goats and sheep which is what they they live off so most of the country is nomadic herders um so they most of what they eat is mutton so they have huge herds of goats and sheep um so they'll horses they use to herd, they've got those ones. And then they've got the race horses, so the very best horses. Um it's like a social status, pride kind of thing. Um so the people with the best racehorses have like the highest social status. <laughs> um so there's a there's a lot to be gained by training a good racehorse. And they have these they're called Nadams, um, which are their horse races. Um and they go from yearlings to five year olds. But the <laughs> they have little kids riding them though, which is it's probably the most alarming thing when you watch them because they're going they go flat out um, for about ten kilometers on these horses, but like with five year olds riding them.
1: <laughs> that is absolutely insane. But I can't imagine how cool that must have been to watch.
0: Yeah, so it's it's a bit wild west out there, but um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating culture, and they are the most welcoming people. Like. A whole lot of strangers turn up at your house in the middle of the night and they welcome you in, put you down in front of the fire and give you food and yeah, they look after you anyway. They may have, they take a lot of pride in their hospitality. I have, have nothing bad to say about them. They're, they're very hospitable people and amazing horsemen.
2: Now, just before we get on with the show, a quick word from our sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at VetEx. If you're struggling with managing time, feeling like you're an imposter or burning out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you are not broken. You're not a bad fit for the profession. Much more likely you are missing some super important foundational skills no one is teaching at university. Skills that you will learn as part of our VetEx community. The Thrive Community is a race accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more and find out if the class is a good fit for you, visit vetxinternational.com today. Now back to the show. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Now we're going to get back to part two of That Vet Life podcast. Over to you, Mo.
1: So how does that work then? Um, Because obviously, like the people who organize the Mongol Derby, they have to go around to these different families then and kind of explain it to them. And like, how does that organization, I mean, maybe, because obviously you're involved on like the horse vetting side of things, but how does the organization of this whole entire thing work with the logistics? Because you have how many... yeah, <laughs> with how many different stations, because you said that you have to kind of collect horses for every station and like working with the families.
0: Some station would have, um, they'd just be one family, they'd have enough horses that they could give us 40 of the right age and because they all had to be geldings as well. So the Mongolians don't actually ride the mares, they only use them for breeding and they also use, so they um, milk them for mare's milk. So a lot of the milk is mares milk so a lot of their dairy products um but where was i (laughs) what are you talking about Uh, collecting
1: horses together yeah (laughs) um
0: yeah so some some people would have a lot of horses um that have hundreds and hundreds um so you could easily get 40 who are above five and geldings which is the criteria for the race um but others um There'd be smaller families or younger families who hadn't built up those herds yet, um, so we'd have to have like four or five families to make up enough for that station to get 40 horses for the station. Um, so that that in itself is a bit of a logistical nightmare. But we've got some really good people in Mongolia who work all year round trying to try and make this happen. So they're already starting again this year, getting it all going for next year.
1: Yeah, like um, mapping so out the trail a lot and. Of work yeah a lot of work oh gosh yeah so they try
0: and do a different trail each year so you don't use the same families all the time okay. um families do get reimbursed so that if their horse gets used um they get paid for that
1: okay yeah i wondered like how did it's just like how does that all work with the logistics and because obviously this happens year after year and do you know how long this has been going on 10 years and their plan is for it to keep going then well, as
0: far as i know yes although they're also setting up something similar which they're calling the gaucho derby in patagonia so i'm not quite sure what the details of that are but that should be pretty good
1: yeah cuz mongolia is, has the steppes and it's just kind of like the wide kind of yeah, plains
0: it's beautiful rolling grasslands for literally as far as you can see but there's some mountains and there's some rivers and like forests but most of it is just rolling grassland and it just goes for- like you can do a thousand kilometer race and never come across a fence it's it's that big amazing
1: (laughs) that sounds amazing so take me back to back to the selection of the horses how long did that take and was that like a month before the actual race or what was the window that you had to select horses and have them ready
0: we did it um so it was two weeks i was there but we did it about three weeks before the race started it's a fine line between having it too far or too close because they've once we select them, they start um, sort of getting them used to having a rider again and that kind of stuff. So they make them a little bit more rideable. Um, but we also don't want it too long that they kind of forget about it and <laughs> turn them out again and <laughs> leave them. So there's like a... Um, yeah, so usually we get some really good fit horses who are actually used to having a rider by that point. Um, and there was also a bit of, like, this year because... Um, The rains came really late. Um, It was actually quite tough to select some of the horses because there were a lot that were still pretty skinny from the winter Mm. and we didn't want to, there (laughs) was, usually they're all good within a month because there's so much grass comes through and they put it on really quickly. Um, But yeah, it was a little tougher because we we didn't really know for sure. So we we didn't select a lot of the horses if they were too skinny, even though it probably would have been all right. Um, So that was hard to find enough horses in some places. Um, depending on the rains, because you you got to think that like they don't have hay or anything. Everything is is re- reliant. Yeah, what on... you
1: see is what you get for them, yeah.
0: But yeah, we we managed to select fourteen hundred horses within two weeks. There was a lot of driving, so I think we drove like two thousand four hundred kilometers in all. Oh,
1: that, um, that still blows my mind <laughs> that you had to out in the back of the car. <laughs> oh gosh, because like I'm thinking back to like basic vet. Um, clinical exams and like obviously you had to f- visually inspect these animals like from afar to be like oh like you said body condition like that one is enough that one is not enough pick that one and then you have to go through the process of actually doing a lameness evaluation mm-hmm. like you said a cardiac evaluation that that's not a fast process by any means we got it down pretty quick um <laughs> so we had a really good process going
0: so we'd have them lined up would, well, some of the places, if if they could catch them, Um, (laughs) hopefully we'd have them lined up so we could go through them pretty quickly. Um, So we'd have to write down their brands. So that was one of the main ways we could identify them later on to make sure we had the same horses for the actual race. Um, And then, so I'd then get up close to them. I'd look them over first, make sure there's nothing obvious. So like no eye lesions or like snotty nose or like obvious wounds or something like that and then i'd get up and do like um a quick cardiac evaluation and listen to their lungs um then trot them up and back and that was pretty much it it was quick but you cover all the bases um so the things we were ruling out were saddle sores um heart murmurs heart arrhythmias although i didn't have any heart arrhythmias a few heart murmurs but a very low number to be honest and these horses—they're like amazingly healthy, considering. Like they've never seen a vet or a farrier in their life, and their feet are perfect. And they <laughs> live on grass and
1: air. They live
0: on grass and air. Yep, pretty much. They—they they drink once a day when they go down to the river. That's twenty kilometers away. Yeah.
1: <laughs> these guys what are horses. Are meant to be like <laughs> they're physiological beasts. Oh my goodness! Yeah. They've got the. I think it's the greatest genetic
0: diversity of any breed. So they really are natural selection has done a good job Then they're not selective for anything but their survival of the fittest really
1: so they really do just kind of I mean obviously they're gelding um, a lot of the males but they're selecting who the stallion is in that essence mm-hmm. and then they just turn them out and let it be.
0: Yeah pretty much and the, all these stallions have the little family groups so you've got a stallion with like probably 10 mares or so and some yearlings and, and foals and some geldings tagging along and <laughs> <laughs> these little family groups. It was really cool. Oh,
1: that's so cool to think about. Like Now I really want to go to Mongolia and just to witness all of this. Yeah. Oh.
0: Just the horses themselves
1: are fascinating. And they're
0: literally every single different color you could possibly think of.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I remember you posted some on your Instagram that like the markings were just unbelievable. Like, You guys will have to go and check out um, her Instagram. Um, but like literally some of the the markings on these horses are not like nothing that i've ever seen before
0: yeah they have this kind of prehistoric almost um you see them on the prowalski horses these zebra stripes on their leg and then the the bider marking which is it's like it's like a lace pattern so it kind of goes down yeah neck that was the there. one
1: that was the one yeah
0: and i'd never seen it before and i was fascinated by it but and you often see it in these family groups it seems to be genetic so like you go to to one um family and their horses will have this markings and then another family they'll all be like leopard spotted <laughs> it's, it's really cool
1: Going back to it, you did the physical exam on these horses and that kind of gives a little bit of security knowing that you're sending these horses out with these riders and the riders are some of the most some rather fit human beings as well because they have to train forever to be ready for this That's quite a
0: strict selection process for the riders, yeah, so we make sure that they're good riders and that they're Well, we hope they're tough, (laughs) tough enough to make it, but
1: yeah. Yeah, because they're basically, they're sent out between these stations pretty much on their own. It's not like, I mean, is there anybody really monitoring the route or is it just kind of, you just check in at the next route, kind of like the Iditarod? So they have trackers on them.
0: They've got spot trackers. So we theoretically know where they they are at all times, but um, it's self-navigated. So they have the station points and however they get between them is up to them
1: (laughs) but so much can happen between each of those stations and obviously these horses are super tough but they are still horses and so i guess like part of being the vet then is how are you ensuring the the welfare of like yes we're we're using these horses um we're sending them out but there is risk involved obviously
0: oh sure um and i guess it's the risk whenever you ride a horse that something will go wrong um but we didn't have any fatalities this year. Um, no broken legs or anything like that, which I think for 1400 horses is pretty good. Um, we had a few that were dehydrated. Um, but we, we spoke to the riders beforehand. We were pretty strict about saying that these horses have to come into the stations with their heart rates below 56. They have to be metabolically sound. You can't. If if you're riding in a lame horse, you'll be disqualified. Um, If you have a horse that goes lame, you have to press your SOS button and let us know and all that kind of stuff. So there's some pretty strict regulations in place and riders know that they will be penalized heavily if the horse is not in good shape. Mm -hmm. So they all look after them. Um, And the only things that went wrong this year were sort of minor accidents or cuts and scrapes, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. And speaking of the, the cuts and scrapes, I actually, I reached out to your friend, Eric Cooper, and I, I kind of was like, do you know of any good stories that maybe, um, Regina would tell us, um, on the podcast? And he just kind of was like, oh, ask about, like, we already talked about the selection of horses, but apparently you did some pretty epic field surgeries. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> we
0: did, we did a few. Um, that's probably two that come to mind. Um, one was a little foal, actually, a three-month-old foal, um, and it had this huge scrotal hernia. It was like the size of a basketball, and, yeah, they basically said it had been not keeping up with the herd, it had been, like, rolling around and stuff, and it was either euthanasia or try and do field surgery, so, <laughs> and apparently it's doing really well. So, yeah, I managed to correct the scrotal hernia, and um, I saw it again when I came back the next next time, and he was super happy with it, and actually had managed to do my post-op care (laughs) which that's even more incredible yeah so that that was an amazing success i totally expected that to be infected and horrific by the time i got back but we actually um so i kind of felt a bit guilty about this it almost being our fault but um one of the stallions that we brought into one of the yards during selection jumped out and completely gutted himself so they had it in his it had like these metal stakes around the yard and he jumped over one and it went into his abdomen and like oh, ripped it all open. Yeah, that was that was pretty bad and they were just gonna let him go and I was like, I think there's something hanging out. Oh <laughs> no. <laughs> um yeah, so and I actually only had sedation, so he did a standing sedated abdominal closure, which was <laughs> a little bit hairy as well. Yeah. But apparently really doing well when I saw him again next. So um. yeah amazing
1: <laughs> so what kind of kit do you have with you because obviously there's only so much you can get some in during the course of the race I'm guessing but your actual physical kit and how do you sterilize that um, out in the in the in the field setting
0: I brought out a few sterile surgical kits with me just normal stitch kits um, and then we've got um we had some antibiotics not not much some pain relief and then like bandaging sedation eye meds um, a lot of fluids actually for the actual race in case of we had a really hot day and we had dehydrated horses we try not to use flnextin or butte um because mostly these horses if they euthanize they get eaten by vultures or eagles and it's toxic and makes their eggshells really um friable so that we have the bear that in mind. So we try not to use too much of that. But yeah, just like your standard stuff you'd have in your vet car.
1: So how many vets were there total for this uh for the race?
0: Uh we had eight for the race. Which it which actually ended up spreading out quite a lot. <laughs> so we're playing hopscotch from station to station, so there was always a vet at the station when a rider would get there. But it meant a lot of um very fast driving to beat, beat the riders to the next station after you left the last one. But um, no, it all worked out well in the end. But, oh, wow, the organizers, they're logistical geniuses. They're all sitting in HQ, like, moving us around like chess pieces. <laughs> very <laughs> impressive.
1: Because at each station there's, what, like 50-plus horses and 20-plus people, and then you have the herdsmen, and that is just incredible, the number of people that are involved in this race.
0: And being Mongolia, something always goes wrong. So for example, we um, <laughs> one of the stations is furthest away from anything. Um, it's literally the furthest out you can get. Um, so there's very few towns for it. Um, so there's one town you pass on the way up. Um, so we're all meant to get fuel at this one town. Um, and we get there and all the fuel stations have run out. And they're like, oh, there's maybe a tanker coming in two weeks time. <laughs> Two weeks, <laughs> and we're like, oh my god, um, we've all run out of fuel. Um, but <laughs> and then we went on a hunt for people who might have had jerry cans or like like storing fuel, um, and we find out that in this town, <laughs> which is so typical of Mongolia, um, they've actually banned jerry cans because last year a woman set her husband on fire with fuel out of a jerry can. So now you're not allowed jerry cans. Oh my. <laughs>
1: usual reaction of course <laughs> well it's not not a <laughs> normal thing to happen in any town
0: nothing's normal but uh, um yes yeah, so that was another we had to get people coming up with jerry cans and then another tank of fuel and spitting the fuel siphon between all our cars and
1: <laughs> enough to get you to the next town then right yeah
0: just to get there on our vapor to the next town <laughs>
1: because two weeks in two weeks the race would have been over right? because it's about 14 days or uh, 10 days is the cutoff okay. yeah
0: so the winners did it in seven days yeah so you're doing three or four stations a day you're doing like 140 kilometers of the day if you're gonna win it
1: when do you sleep if you're doing that
0: <laughs> <laughs> well there are riding hours you're not allowed to ride when it's dark okay Yeah, because we have to go and, because people also sleep out, so if people go do half a leg and then it gets dark, they'll find just some random herder to stay with. (laughs) So then we as vets have to go and find the horse and make sure the horse is looking good. So make sure they haven't pushed it really hard up until nightfall.
1: Yeah, and then that's like extra logistics for you guys, because you're at the station and then you have to find the rider and the horse. and speaking of finding horses were there cases where the horse like obviously when you're switching horses uh, I've heard the number one rule is don't let go of your horse um mm-hmm. but like obviously some got away right so how do you uh, do they just stick around with the herd or do they just kind of bolt off for a while it depends like
0: a couple of people fell off and their horses just went they just Galloped off and never to be seen again with their saddle and and <laughs> sleeping bag. Um, <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> that's kind of rough. Usually, you can find them. Like the herders do know where to look for them, um, but you're unlikely to find it yourself. And some just stick around. If you're riding with a group, they'll just stay with the other horses. But there's everything that can go wrong. Even if you're the best rider in the world, you pick every single good horse. There's still the unknown happens.
1: And that's a wrap on today's episode of That Vet Life Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, before you go, I have a quick request. Now, podcasts and communities, they grow the best and they grow the biggest when the members spread the word. So if you know someone who you think needs to hear this episode, or if you found value in this episode and want to share it, go ahead and share this with your friends. And also, don't forget to head over to vedexinternational.com and enroll in the Vedex community for free. To get access to a bonus version of this show. You'll also get some free swag and many, many other amazing benefits. Also leaving a review of the show on iTunes would be greatly appreciated because again, it just helps get the word out. But until next time, y'all, I hope you enjoyed this episode of That Fat Life.